and Paul, and <clears throat> nice to be back with you. Good morning. <clears throat> I'm still working on that, actually. I don't know. <laughs> I've lost track. But uh, <clears throat> thank you for your prayers in the last couple of weeks. It's, I think it's at least that, isn't it? It's been a while, but at any rate. Well, let's, uh, let's take our Bibles this afternoon, this morning. I'll get back into the morning again. <laughs> You'd be amazed how long that's going to take, isn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> but this morning, let's go to uh, the book of Mark. And we continue our journey <clears throat> through the, the Passion of Christ. Mark chapter 15, and we'll begin reading at verse 16. Mark chapter 15, verse 16. And we'll go through verse 32. Mark chapter 15, beginning now at verse 16. The soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. They clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. They gave him a drink, wine mingled with myrrh, and he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour. And they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. The scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And may God add a special blessing to the reading of his word. Let's just pause for prayer prior to our study. Father God, we're happy to be in your midst. Thankful, Father, as we began a new year, that you can be our focus. Regardless of all of the distractions and the various things going on, the struggles, the troubles, the world is engaged in an upheaval, Father, you remain solely, completely, and 100% in control. Father, may we yearn and yield to you. We thank you for this day. We'd ask that you take us where you want us to be. Use the word of God, Father, to speak to our hearts. Allow us to see you more clearly than we've ever done, and relationally to have never been closer. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage that we've read, the suffering and the immense punishment and pain that, was, that, he, that he bore for us, truly, a Savior. Now, Father, take us where we are to a level that you want us to be. We thank you for each one that's here today, Father, and you know their struggles, you know their life's journey even before it unfolds. You know their needs before they do. Thank you for providing. We ask that you bear them up, Father. Put your arms around them, they would feel and know your love. 
But now, Father, these moments are yours as you take us to a new level through the Holy Spirit, who we ask would exclusively be our teacher. These things we ask in Christ's precious and holy name. <clears throat> Amen. Well, we've been, uh, <clears throat> it's been a while, actually, since we've come together around the, learn me, I might have you, if you have the, the uh, map of the temple area, that'll come in handy again today. At any rate, uh, we, we began this several months ago, actually, the journey of Jesus, if you will, um, it, interestingly enough to find how his journey began with his power. And his power was never, ever engaged except for his compassion. When he saw someone that was sick, someone that was demon-possessed, someone that was in trouble, that was literally when Jesus' power rose to the top. It wasn't when the religious leaders asked for another sign. That was never, ever, ever, ever was seen as something important to our, to our Savior. But on each and every level that he, shall we say, rose to a sense of his inner compassions coming, he would cast demons out. He would provide meals for those that had nowhere else to go. He had power over sickness. He had power over nature. He would calm the winds, calm the sea. I uh, think of that, you know, sometimes when we, on the boat that's on the sea and the, and the disciples, which most of those were commercial fishermen, which would be very used to a wild and crazy raging sea. Even they were fearful for their lives. And here's Jesus walking out on the sea, and he stills the wind. But think of that. Just because the wind went away, you'd still have these crazy waves that would still be raging from the previous windstorm. And yet they were calm as well. And there's no doubt that the, the disciples said, who is this? Well, that's who he is. He's the son of God. Uh, we, then we've spent a number of weeks, literally in his last week, the Passion. On Monday, well, he came into the area for, for Passover on a Saturday. Uh, Sunday, the crowds from Jerusalem came out, who is this one that raised Lazarus from the dead? By the way, when you can raise someone from the dead, that's another level. I can't imagine the Jerusalem Times, dead man raised from dead. That doesn't even sound right, does it? And yet Jesus got it done. Uh, on Sunday, they came out to see him. On Monday, they crowned him king. He set up the donkey that would carry him through the streets of Jerusalem as they laid down their coats and palm branches. Hail, king of the Jews. They had chosen their king. Uh, but the thing that's always behind all of that is what they wanted from their king. Jesus came to save souls, not make people rich. Still, that's his business today isn't it? That's his business today. First order of business after Monday, Tuesday morning, he goes in, and I'm sure that the Jews and the disciples particularly saw, there's an opportunity. We're finally going to wipe the Romans out. We've got our king. He's powerful. He's amazing. And we have him, and he's going to go into downtown Romanville and take them out, and we will once and for all be the kingdom of God encompassing the earth, and we are here forever. Wrong. First stop was the temple, and he wipes it out. He cleans it out. He throws out the bums, the people that are making money off of God. And they must have been aghast. The religious leaders have risen to a new level of hatred. Now they want him dead. In fact, if you start from way back in John chapter 3, literally 
I don't know what the two, John chapter two, that literally Jesus started there at the beginning of his ministry. Three years before that, he started by cleansing the temple, reclaiming it for his father, the house of prayer. Here is his last mission. And on Wednesday, it was probably the greatest day the temple had ever had. Jesus alone was teaching in the Lord's house. That must have been fun to be there, right? That was a long day. Thursday, we know that he was preparing for the last time they would be together. As they gathered for that evening in the upper room, he did not disclose addresses because Judas, no doubt, would have used that opportunity to betray him even at the house before they would have went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus needed to be there to pray for his disciples and literally the most important thing on his agenda, the thing that he'd come to earth to be, and that was to literally give himself to be the Savior for you, for me, and the world. That was the greatest level of anguish. And that seems surprising to us because, uh, and it's interesting, did you, in the passage we read today, did you see there's no adjectives affixed to the flogging or the scourging, either word can be useful there, or the crucifixion. It just says he was crucified. Uh, those that were living and would have read of those accounts would have known the excruciating punishment, probably the most evil, the most punishing form of capital punishment ever devised by mankind. Uh, Darius the Mede was the one that's thought, uh, you know, no one can say for sure, but he was the one certainly made it popular. When he took over, Darius, he actually crucified 2,000 uh, or 3,000 Babylonians. That's where it was kind of risen to a level of, what should we say, uh, something that had a lot of power in it. And if you think about all of the punishment that, was, that, that revolved around the crucifixion itself, none of the gospel writers actually speak to it in any sense of enlargement. No adjectives are, are affixed to it. The same with flogging. Flogging was something that literally was always done before crucifixion, which literally would have sped up the death process. There was a couple of men called lictors that would have been using a leather whip and at the ends would have bone or steel or some sense of a tied at the very end, they would actually rotate through, causing, I mean, immense damage. I, I, I can't describe for you. You'll let you. I'll let you get there by yourself. And then to think that that was the lead-in to crucifixion. <clears throat> but none of that is mentioned, literally in any sense of enlargement. Why? Because the thing that sticks out is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified. Are you ready? Because he was the Son of God. Let that soak in for a moment. The one that never sinned, the one that never caused any struggles in the sense of creating anything amongst humans as being anything negative. Now, he brought negativity to those that were literally calloused in sin, those that were religious leaders that really weren't of God. He raised that to an, to an issue. This one that was literally the Son of God. And that was his accusation. There was numbers of things that he was accused of, but the one that literally he was crucified for was because he was the Son of God. Now, wait a minute. What do you mean? The Son of God, and they never proved he wasn't. They said that he was blasphemously declaring himself to be the Son of God, which would require what? Prove he's not. I mean, if you can raise someone from the dead, that's a pretty good plus. When you can say to the wind, calm, when you can basically cast demons. And when you can do all the things that Jesus declared, not only declared, he showed them, that's a pretty good start. And yet, he was crucified because he was the Son of God. 
That's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. And the question I would like to have you ask yourselves as, as we went through, we've read this, and you know, it's, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to notice where we are in our nation today and across the world. You know, we're a mess. We're a complete disaster, right? It's, 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 it's ridiculous. Where is God in all of this, right? How long is God going to put up with this stuff? Right? Have you asked that question? I'm asking, where's justice? Where is justice? And it would seem that the world is so, so corrupt, and I'm not just America, but the, the world is so corrupt that justice is no longer even something we can relate to. Isaiah 5.20, woe unto them that says evil is good and good is evil. That's where our world is entrenched. It's right there. And along with that, justice has no way of being served. My question, where and how long, God, are you going to wait? It's time, right? Habakkuk in chapter 1 of Habakkuk. How long, God, would you let this go on? And then God replies by saying, well, I'm about ready to do something. In fact, the nation Israel is going to be conquered by the Babylonians. What? How could this be? Right? That would even be worse. And Habakkuk at the end, though, said, no matter what happens, there's no cattle in the stall. There's no feed for anything. It's completely wiped out. I will praise the name of the Lord. That's, our, that's really where we should be as Christians. God is in charge. He's in control. But i got to believe that in this 24-hour period, from the Garden of Gethsemane when he was betrayed until 3 o'clock in the afternoon the next day, of which Jesus never got five minutes of sleep, I'm not sure when he actually would have got a good restful sleep. Maybe Wednesday night? And here we are now. We're close to 9 a.m. on Friday morning. That's where we're at. We're about to have the Lamb of God to be crucified. Wow. And in that 24-hour period, if there was ever a time that you would say, where is God at? The high priests, or the high priest and the scribes and the Pharisees and all of those are blasphemously spitting in God's face. Literally, God's face. How long are you going to put up with this, God? It's a good question, isn't it? What was it that made him not just say, enough already, enough already? You're done. It's over. But he doesn't do that. Why not? Well, let's look at some of the details that are surrounding. Oh, Laramie's got this up here. Let's. Uh, Larry, I took it home because the battery is dead. And you didn't bring it. Just laying on, laying so, on my counter. <laughs> well, that's good. We, at least we'll know, where, we'll know where it's at. So I'm just going to use uh, something else. Um, today we're finding ourselves uh, <coughs> probably in Pilate's. Uh, one other, before you can go there. So now we've come through since the Garden of Gethsemane, which was in the middle of the night, Thursday night, until where we're at today, which we're in that time period between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. Friday morning. Okay, that's where we're at. Um, and we've endured, Jesus has endured, six illegal trials. The first one was from the Garden of Gethsemane, went to Annas' house, which would have been the high priest. And that would be right in this area. This would have been a complex, the high priest's house, that actually housed not only the high priest, but also the high priest's families. Those that would, and, and the Romans rotated through those. They did not want a high priest to go on for a long period of time. They wanted to be able to control the power of that. However, Annas would have been known as the godfather, if you will, if you follow that sense of logic. He was the one that was fully entrenched as the power he was the power guy. His job was to come up with some kind of an indictment against this Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus that was claiming to be the Messiah, to get him killed. And this was the time. And Judas had played his part by betraying Jesus. Again, this whole undertone of this is, 
Judas, I'm not sure, it's fairly evident from the whole thing if you find him actually taking his own life later on after seeing that Jesus' life would be taken. I'm convinced that Judas, knowing the power that Jesus that had, that he literally betrayed him so that Jesus would rise up to the occasion and finally just wipe the Romans out. That was Judas. He wanted money, and he wanted a lot of it, and he wanted a lot of power. That sounds very much like our world today. Uh, God is only valuable as much as he can give me. That's a picture of most people's view of God. What can he give me? What can he get for me? What can I get from him? Uh, Judas betraying him, however, would have went initially to Annas's uh, house. Uh, that ended up sort of in a disaster. There was nothing really that went of that. He next went to the son-in-law, Annas's son-in-law called Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the acting high priest, and he was the one that finally came up. He said, do you say that you are the son of God? And he said, you say that I am. Oh, that's it. And then from that point on, they had wanted him to be in the, have a death penalty. All of this was done at night. They then, around daybreak, would have engaged one more time with the Sanhedrin, the leading, the Supreme Court, if you will, of the land of Israel. Seventy members would have been there. They would have, again, declared him guilty of blasphemy. Blasphemy in Leviticus chapter 14, 24, verse 16 says that it's, that it's uh, punishable by death. Now, if he would have been killed by the Jewish rule of law, he would have been stoned. But that's not what the Old Testament says of the Messiah. It says that he would be lifted up, which means that the Romans had to be entered into. And by the way, the, Romans, the reason that the Romans were in, engaged was the fact that they did not, that they, being the Jews, had not the power, the right to take life from any individual. It was still the Roman government that was in, in charge of capital punishment. So they went to Pilate. And that, amazingly, the, the, the title of the challenges of which he was accused of changed. It was said that he was trying to not have people pay taxes to Caesar, that he was stirring up the people, that he was trying to take Caesar's place. All of those was not the reason that the Jews had come up with. But nonetheless, all of these things were conflated. And it doesn't take Pilate too long to see the man's not guilty. And pretty soon you could see it wasn't Jesus in front of Pilate. It was Pilate in front of Jesus. But he's trying to get out of it. He sends him to here. Oh, and by the way, I didn't follow through, but from, from Annas and Caiaphas and that railroading job, they would have went to Herod's palace, which you see Praetorium here. That was where in the time where Pilate would have resided in his moments of being, or time of being in Jerusalem. Now, he did not reside permanently in Jerusalem, but this was the Passover. This was a big deal. There were hundreds of thousands, think of that, hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem celebrating the largest event in Jerusalem of the year, the Passover, <coughs> depicting all of that took place when Egypt and Israel was delivered from them. So he's initially there, and he tries to get out of it, so he sends him down the road to Herod Antipas, Let's get somebody else to look at this thing. Herod just really had fun with him more than anything. He was the one that had really beheaded John the Baptist. And he'd been wanting to see Jesus. And he really just scornfully said, well, what a joke. And, just, and sent him back to Pilate. This is the sixth trial. Pilate is really behind, between a rock and a hard place. So this is what brings us kind of to this point of where we are right now in the fact that he knows he's not guilty. He knows just out of envy that the high priests have brought him before him. So what he's going to do now, even though he says and declares he's not guilty, he scourges him. Now, wait a minute. You're not guilty, but you're punished? What is that message? 
But it seems from evident, we'll go into John chapter 19 here shortly. It seems that Pilate was gambling from the standpoint if he could beat up Jesus enough or scourge him or flog him, get some blood out there, that literally he would present him again, that the people would have to come to their senses and say, that's enough. When in John, we'll see this in just a moment, when Pilate behold the man, remember that statement? What do you think Jesus looked like at that point? Uh, we've just uncovered during this whole thing of in the praetorium, which I think would have been, again, right in this courtyard where Pilate would have resided. And the reason it was called the praetorium was because the, the elite troops that would have been surrounding Jerusalem would have called the praetoria. Where were they quartered? In the praetorium. That seems to be the place of where they were. Now, the rest of the troops would have been in Antonia Fortress, which would have been off from the, from the temple. Now, I believe just because of the, the there seems to be an intimacy of Pilate with the situation, I still think it was probably right in here. Now, as we'll look forward to for just a moment, there are a couple places at Golgotha or the place of the skull or Calvary. Calvary would be the Latin word for Golgotha or for us, the English word which we use Calvary as well because in Latin it is Calvary. Uh, the traditional spot would have been outside of the city wall at that point, but it's actually inside now. But then you'll go up to the top, which I can't reach with my marker. There's one that says Gordon's Calvary. Do you see that? There's a man by the name of Gordon that took a perspective that literally the place that Jesus was crucified actually took the resemblance of the skull. Okay? Now, no one knows. But it certainly would have been outside of the city walls at the time being, and it would seem to be to the north in this particular position. But notice, uh, if you use your scale, uh, whatever that length is, it's about a quarter mile. You can tell from Herod's palace, the praetorium, which would have been where Jesus was led then to be crucified after being scourged, that it's not very far. It's not very far at all. And yet he was so weakened that he couldn't even carry the crossbeam to the place. That's all going on. But the thing that the gospel writers talk a lot about is not the flogging, not the crucifixion, but the mocking and the blas blasphemous comments that are made about the Son of God. Let's, let's go back to our text now in Mark chapter 15 and take a look. Uh, in fact, what we wanted, uh, let, you know, we'll read verses 16 through 20, and then I want to go to John chapter 19 because it fills in some blanks. The soldiers led him away, verse 16, chapter 15, away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. Now, uh, some of your versions may have cohort. I'm not sure that you do or don't, but remember, who went out to the Garden of Gethsemane? It was a cohort. It would have been one-tenth one of a legion. A legion is 6,000 men. So one-tenth of 6,000 is 600. This would have been probably, more than likely, the same cohort, the same group that went out to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They are now coming in to have this time of amusement or mockery into this courtyard where Pilate would have resided, the praetorium, if you will. This is totally, totally beyond belief in the sense of mockery and just making fun of this one that's called King of the Jews. Now, the other thing, let's take a step back. Uh, Pilate would have, stepping ahead, but it also coming back, Pilate hated the Jews. The Jews hated Pilate. It was a really mutual agreement of both of them. We could go in, I think I've already done that several weeks ago, why the Jews and Pilate hated one another, so I'm going to just suffice that to say they earned it legally. 
But Pilate saw this as an opportunity to sort of get back to them. When he was given to crucifixion, every time that someone was crucified, there was a placard or something that was hung around their neck and then ultimately placed at the top of the cross that would give the reason for the crucifixion. Pilate took it upon himself to write this. The full inscription would have been, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what do we know about the word Nazareth? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. In any state that you've probably been raised, there's a town somewhere in that state that has said, nothing good comes from that place. Nazareth was the place in Israel. Okay? So he says that, Jesus of Nazareth, and then he says below it in three different languages, in Greek, Aramaic, and Latin, the king of the Jews. Now that was totally in jest or a comedy. This man, this Jesus from Nazareth, with nothing good comes from, is their king. Hardy, har, har, har. That's how Pilate would have seen this. And it carries on. Now, let me take you back, though, that where this started. If you go back to um, Mark chapter 10 and verse 34. All of this was started by none other than supposedly, or the ones that should have known better, the religious leaders. Uh, Jesus, actually, where I'm going is Jesus said this before they even went to Jerusalem. So let's, let's start here. Verse 32, Mark chapter 10. I'm sorry. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were in the way going up to Jerusalem. This is as they're going to the Passion Week. Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. They knew <laughs> we shouldn't be going to Jerusalem. There's a lot of people who hate you, Jesus. He took again the 12 and began to tell them what things should happen unto him. Verse 33, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, they shall scourge him, they shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Now that's good news if you're a disciple. Not so much. <laughs> In one of those occasions, Peter took Jesus aside. Stop it! Don't say that anymore. I wish you don't do that. You are the Messiah. You are the King. You are the one that's, you are the Christos, the Christ, the anointed one. What are you doing? And you remember what Jesus said? Get behind me, Satan. That is not the plan, Peter. The plan is for me to literally become the Savior of the world. I've come to save men from their sins. That's number one. Yes, there's a time coming. My second coming, I will come. The kingdom will be completely established, and I will come with ruling, reign, and judgment. Now, trust me, God is coming to judge the people. Those chief priests, literally, that, that, that blasphemously crucified Jesus Christ as being the Son of God, they will pay for eternity for their position to not accept the Savior of the world. Now think of this for a moment. There's another question I'd like to ask of you. When you think about value of something, what, it, what determines value? Let's just take a, just think of a car for a moment. Excuse me? Supply and demand, okay, that, that is true, by the way. That creates some sense of the, of the up and down in value, correct? If you have an awful lot of wheat on the market, the price tends to go down, which it's doing right now, which I can speak to personally. <laughs> but if, it's, if there's not very much, or, or the other thing is, even the sense of public have? attitude, Right? Why do you, why, why, like, you know, if you pull a $10 uh, uh, 
piece of paper out of your wallet and you pay for something. Or in my case, yesterday I went and got a haircut. Lisa finally said, that's, or it was Friday, I guess. She said, that's probably enough. You need to do something about that. So, <laughs> so knowing to be the wise husband, I went ahead and did something about that. Okay? So I went to Dylan and, uh, and waited for a while and then they lowered my ears and it was all good. And I, yeah, and I, and I, and I went to pay her and there was a price. Okay? And I doled out the pieces of paper that said the amount of money I owed, and she accepted that. Why did she accept that? Excuse me? That's correct. But why did she accept that piece of paper that had green on it and had different denominations? Because the attitude behind it. We trust it. Correct? That's the way it is. That's the value of money. Now, Confederate money, if I would have taken out my, which I don't have any, but if I would have had Confederate money and I would have paid her in the same denomination, she said, Mr. Melhoff, no, she doesn't know my name even. She said, sir, that's not going to work here. Or Monopoly money. How many of you pack Monopoly money around that? Go into Murdoch's and say, I've got, I, I'll give you $100,000 for that pack of ivermectin, right, that I need for the cows. They would say, no, it doesn't work that way. We want the good stuff. We want the stuff that's accepted, the stuff we trust, the stuff we trade, correct? And a lot of it is just what we believe. But value, a value is one, is something that what you would agree to pay. Now the value is different to different people. Let's say that there's a brand new Chevy pickup, which I don't even would begin to guess what one of those are worth today, <laughs> let alone if you could even get one, right? takes two years or three years or whatever. You can't even, I, whatever, you, you get where I'm going. So to one person that really needs a pickup really, really badly and has the funds, it probably would be of a higher value than someone that doesn't need one or doesn't have enough money to even get close, correct? It's, it's not even an issue. But value is whatever one agrees to pay for anything. I can take anything. It's what do you agree to pay? Now, there's something that each and every one of you have that is of eternal value because you live eternally. Your soul. What is your soul worth? What Jesus paid for it. And how much did he pay? Everything. everything. Absolutely everything. 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 See, Satan was counting on this, and we talked quite a bit about this, and the more that I've been studying this, the more evident it becomes. When we see that Satan entered into to, um, Judas Iscariot, automatically our mind goes to he was going to betray him so that Jesus would be killed. I don't believe that for a second. Satan read the Old Testament as well as we can, and he knows inside and out that the last thing that he wanted was for Jesus Christ to hang on that cross to pay for my sin. But if there was a way literally for him to avoid that. Well, why would he get into Judas? What, 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 how does that work? Remember, Satan even misunderstands the wickedness of the human heart. If you keep in mind, on Monday, the crowds crowned him king. How could they possibly crucify him on a Friday? Because humans are wicked. <laughs> we really, very, de very deceitful, right? Yes, he was deceiving the devil. And thinking about what Satan wanted, if he could put enough punishment, enough pressure, enough anguish, 
enough over the top that Jesus, I can't take it anymore. I cannot do this. It's too painful. It's not worth it. Remember what Satan, his last temptation that he gave to Jesus. I will give you all of this world. Just worship me. That's all he had to do was just literally take a knee, worship Satan, and Satan would just give it all to him. Cutting the corners. How easy would that have been compared to hanging on a cross? But Satan misunderstood, underestimated the power of love because Satan knows nothing of love. He knows nothing of love. He's a liar and a hater and a murderer from the beginning. He could not understand how much God loved us that Jesus would succumb to the anguish the pain, the mocking, the blasphemy, hanging on a cross. But for Jesus, it wasn't the physical pain. I want to make sure that we understand that. His greatest anguish was in the Garden of Gethsemane when great drops of blood, which just as perspiration would have come off of him. He asked two, two times for sure and probably even three times, if this cup could pass from me, may it be, but your will, God's will, be done. That was the height of his anguish because he knew the cup of wrath he would have to wear for sin that he never sinned for three hours, having God the Father turn his back on God the Son. I have no idea of how to describe that to you. But the world itself, and this will be next week, but from noon at noon, noon, like, like the sky is high, the sun is at the top, from noon to three o'clock, it was dark. Now, when's the last time, folks, you woke up in the morning at whatever time you wake up and you saw the sun come up and at noon it was dark? And I'm not talking a little dark, really dark. I think that would have been the first thing that would have got the Roman centurion thinking. All of this is taking place before 9 a.m. All of this mocking, all of this ridiculous fanfare of making fun of this king of the Jews. How about at noon? when Jesus has been on the cross for three hours and it's now dark. I'd be scared. And for three additional hours, it's dark. Because that's the only thing it could be because God had turned his back on his son. The cup of wrath had been poured on his son. I can't describe that for you, but I can tell you this, that God saw the value of your soul to be that important. It was worth everything that Jesus came to pay for you. That's amazing. That's amazing. This amusement that the Romans and the chief priests, and let's, let's go to, I promised to go to John. It's taken me longer to get there than I had hoped, but John chapter 19, let's go there for a moment. John chapter 19. Now, this is coinciding, but gives us a little bit more. You would think from the Mark version that literally Pilate had made up his mind. He had scourged him and he passes him over to be crucified. But let's watch it from John. There's a little bit more here. John chapter 19, verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 19. Now, keep in mind something else had happened just previously. This hadn't worked either. Pilate's plan was, you know what? There's, this is this time of year during Passover that we take, we take one person 
that we released to the public that would have been indicted, that would have been arrested, that would have been hide, that would have been held to a position of a criminal. Now, at this point, he would have to have thought, this Jesus, the ones they want to crucify, because he says he's the Son of God, this would be a candidate. So he says, would you rather have me give you Barabbas, who a couple weeks before had killed people? He was an insurrectionist. In fact, I'm convinced the two thieves, one on each side of Jesus, would have been his accomplices. But Barabbas would have been the leader. He was the one in charge of the insurrection. There was murder. There was robbery as a, as a, as a result of this thing that happened just a few weeks previous. Do you want me to give you Barabbas or Jesus? And expecting them to say, Jesus, they say, Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Whoops, we missed that one. So Barabbas, now that's his lucky day. Can you imagine him? Now, we don't, we're not told anything about his future, but he was traded for the Son of God. That was a bad trade, if you ask me. But for Barabbas, it was a... Now, did he actually come to know Jesus Christ personally? We don't know. But boy, if that wouldn't have got me thinking, you should have been on the middle cross, right? You walked. You're free. Barabbas had been released. Sounds like a recent trade we made. We've got a couple of them we can be pretty proud of. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's went well. It went well. It went well. It went well. <laughs> then Pilate, therefore, took Jesus, verse 1, chapter 19, and scourged him. This was after he'd given Barabbas. He's trying another route. The soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Hail, King of the Jews. Now, see, if you would have, if you would have been in Caesar's presence, you would have said, Hail, Caesar. This is literally on the other side. This is a parody. This is making fun of everything the Jews were counting on. Hail, King of the Jews. This one that was bloodied, it was beaten. Now that crown of thorns, uh, no one knows exactly, but it's thought that even the plant of which they took this from, they could have been thorns as much as 12 inches long. They made it to look somewhat like a wreath, the golden wreath that a emperor, uh, uh, you know, a Caesar would have worn. It was on the same order, but then you'll find from the text in Mark that they would have placed that on and they would, they would have taken a stick and beat that on his head. How are you doing? Now, the one thing is it's amazing that within our, on our skull, our, our, the flesh around our, our skull, is there's a, lot of, there's a lot of vessels, and you can bleed very profusely. I can't imagine how much blood Jesus would have been bleeding at this point. Crown of thorns. They said, Hail, King of the Jews. They smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. That right there for me, my, my estimation of Pilate has just dropped below the surface. You mean you punish, you scourge someone that's not guilty, but you can see what he's trying to do. I'm going to just beat him up a little bit. I'll bloody him and then you guys will get, oh my goodness, look at this. We've got to have some compassion in this man. I mean, of what threat is he going to be at this point? He'll just go home and kind of like be whoever he isn't, Right? That doesn't work either. Continue. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take you him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Finally, they've said what they've really wanted all along. You know what this would make to Pilate? What difference this would make? Zero. Except he actually is fearful because of that very fact. When Pilate, therefore, verse 8, heard that saying, he was more afraid. 
and went again unto the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? Who are you? Where did you come from? Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest you not that I have the power to crucify thee and the power to release you? In other words, I'm in charge here? Jesus said, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Watch this. Therefore he that delivereth me unto you hath the greater sin. Who would that have been? The chief priests, the scribes, the Jews, the Sanhedrin. They are in a much more guilty position than you. But, however, buddy, the only reason you have anything at all is because God has granted it. Verse 12, from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. Now that he took serious. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth, sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called a pavement by the Hebrew Gabbatha. And it was at the preparation of the Passover in about the sixth hour. He saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. He's done. He's just, in fact, in Matthew it says he washed his hands. How pathetic is that, by the way? He brings out this, brings out this, you know, this bowl, and, and he's, he's like, he's not guilty. I know he's not guilty. You know he's not guilty, but I'm just going to wash my hands, and you guys do what you want with him. Oh, my goodness, right? That's a cop-out. Pathetic. How, how, where is God, right? Are you guys asking that question? Why is God not stepping in? This is enough already. Is this not enough? <coughs> was his plan. That's the part even today that in America, God is patiently, long-sufferingly, that's a better word, God is not patient. Did you know that? Patience requires trials to have it executed. God doesn't need any trials to be perfect. Did you ever think of that? But he's very long-suffering. Very long, very long-suffering. But it says in 2 Peter chapter 3 that, that none should perish. He's waiting so that none should perish. Those blasphemers, blasphemers that day that were cursing and making fun of the Son of God, Jesus died for them. It's amazing the grace and mercy that was shown by our Savior. Um, I don't know, this is popping in my mind, but I read today of a, there was a pastor that actually visited Angola Penitentiary, which is in Louisiana. It's known to be very, very, it's, it's, a max, it's where the worst of the worst reside. And the man that was there, he was actually a full house when he spoke, this particular pastor. And he spoke about the fact, he said, Sirs, no matter how many people that you've killed, no one was killed of higher quality than Jesus Christ. And there was men that killed him that he died for. In fact, that Roman centurion, we'll talk about him next week. At 3 o'clock when Jesus said, it is finished, he said, he said, Centurion said, truly, this was the Son of God. I'm convinced that I will see that man in heaven. And he was one that put Jesus to death. But the crowd must have been mob mentality. They cheered for him one minute and they crucified the man. So exactly right. It's hard to, it's hard to imagine. That's isn't it? me. I found it's hard to imagine. And that, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Isn't it amazing? And the speed of which that goes. Back to, our, to the Angola prison. So there's a packed house, and this pastor is speaking to them. And after the, after the service, which there were men that gave their hearts to the Lord in a prison. Imagine that, right? That's about the only place the Bible is welcome today, is in a prison. 
right? It's not welcome in schools. Actually, not even welcome in some churches. At, at the conclusion, the warden came up to this pastor and he said, did you notice the man that was in the second row? Just the second row? He said, well, no, not really. He said, I watched him because that man, you probably, he doesn't even know how many people he killed. He was a hitman for one of the largest drug cartel in the world. He's killed hundreds. And his eyes were locked on you. And I want to tell you why. A year ago, that man gave his heart to Jesus Christ. It's not fair, is it? It doesn't even seem right. But the value of that man's soul, Jesus paid for it with the same blood that he paid for yours and mine. That, my friends, is love. That is love. Incalculable. Not understood. But freely given to those that trust by faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For Jesus, for the joy before him, endured the cross. Now, I don't know about you. I don't see a lot of joy between a crucifixion and myself. But Jesus saw it that way. We're going to go. Don't let, don't, let's not leave this place today. I want to leave it towards the end. But Isaiah chapter 53 never makes more sense than after you read the crucifixion of Jesus and what had been foretold hundreds of years before. Excuse me? He was born to be our Savior. Jesus Christ was literally the fulfillment of what God had established in before he made anything. Ephesians chapter 1, he said, before the world was made, he knew that the Son of God would be the Savior of the world. That, my friends, is love. That's the message for today in America. That's the message for the world today. Needing to know that's a true Savior. It's not about money. It's not about popularity. It's not about power. It's not about even what goes in Washington, D.C., whether we elect a Speaker of the House or we don't. None of that matters. The power is in the precious blood of Jesus Christ, who thinks your soul is worth dying for. It's too bad we, as humans, don't treat our own souls with as much value. How much of my time is spent in a week just doing life stuff? For 70 years or 80 years or whatever, pick your number, it's 100 years or whatever. That's, that's not, I can't even put a dot on the board that would be reflective of that in eternity's time. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. And that's how much God really thinks you're worth. I don't know how to say it any clearer than that. It's crazy, isn't it? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, <laughs> Pilate's trying to get out of it. Let's go back to Mark. <laughs> Let's say that you woke up on Friday morning on Passover week and you'd been journeying with your family. You'd come from a place called Cyrene. And I didn't tell Laramie this, but Laramie, I don't know if you have a place that would give us uh, like Tripoli, Libya, which would be Northwest Africa. But if he doesn't have it, just think of that in your mind. This man and his family would have come from Libya. He would have come from Northwest Africa to, he was a Jew. And he was traveling to Israel to partake in the Passover. And he no doubt is, with his wife and his family, said, today is the preparation of the Passover. This is going to be a great day. 
I mean, I'm going to enjoy being in Jerusalem today. I mean, we've come for this purpose, and tomorrow we will celebrate it. <coughs> Little did he know. Have you had a day like that? Just today's another normal day that doesn't turn out so normally? Happened to be that Simon the Cyrene was passing in this crowd where Jesus now was being asked to take his crossbeam. The patibulum was the name for it. It would have been the crossbeam. The cross, the vertical, would have been already placed at the site, which, again, I'm not sure exactly where it was, but it would have been not too far from where they're gathered. And Jesus' job now was to carry his own cross, his patibulum. But in his condition, which I can't even imagine he could stand up, let alone carry something, and it would have been thought to be about 100 pounds. Right? <laughs> How are you guys doing? Ah! Well, Cyrene, or Simon, the Cyrene, who was just, I, I'm not even sure he even knew, he was there by providence. If you read the book of Esther, there's one name you'll never see in the whole book of Esther, and it is the word God. And yet, if you take a step back and you analyze it, God is everywhere in Esther. God is everywhere in Simon the Cyrene's life right now. He has brought him from Libya to Jerusalem at just the right time that the Romans, who have all power, they say to him, hey, you! I don't know if he was burly. I don't know if he looked stout. I don't know if he was the one that looked like he could do the job. But they picked him out of a crowd and said, you carry his cross. What did I... This isn't, what? Have you ever had a day like that where it didn't work out anything like you thought it might? And you're all smiling because most days work out that way, don't they? And this man, Simon the Cyrene, from Cyrene, literally took Jesus' cross and carried it. And Jesus, I'm sure they actually would have probably had to have helped to get to the place in his condition. What they had done to him through the whole mocking charade. And it was, it was, that in itself, men and women, do not misplace that. Every single one of the gospel writers talks about enduring the mockery and the hatred and the belittling of the Son of God. All of the punishment, all of that capital, uh, all of the things that would have been, you know, the pain and all of that, every single other person that would have been crucified would have been subject to the same thing, but not at the level of mocking the Son of God. That was new, over the top. Whew. Amazing. Now, it's interesting how Simon is described for us. So what do you know about Simon the Cyrene? He was an unlucky guy. Right? He was in the wrong place at the right time. Look at how Mark, now Mark's gospel would have been written. This would have been about 30 to 33 AD when this actually took place. Now it's thought that Mark got his information from Peter, the apostle. You can see that it's very firsthand. And Peter would have given this to Mark. Mark would have written it. And with that being the case, the canonicity of this particular gospel would have been very utmost. There would have been nothing to doubt. And it would have probably been written in the 50s or 60s. Okay? So Mark would have written more to the Gentile audience, which would have ended up mostly in the Roman, in Rome. A Roman Christian, so to speak, would have been reading this. That's why you don't find any sense of lineage about Jesus Christ. It didn't matter. Matthew and Luke 
they talk about the lineage of Jesus Christ, particularly Matthew, because it's written to Jews. Not only did Jesus come from Joseph's side of being back to King David, which was described in the Old Testament, but also from Mary, went back to the same line of David on both sides. It's amazing how important that lineage is. To Mark, that was not of importance. But let's watch how he describes him. Let's come back to Mark chapter 15 and take a look at verse 21. They compel, that means forced, one Simon a Cyrenian who passed by, <coughs> excuse me, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. Now, what does that mean? If you're reading Mark's letter and you're living in Rome, you may not know Simon, but you do know Alexander and Rufus. Have you had someone describe that to you? Say a name, but you know the son or the daughter of said person. Oh, yeah, I know that family. That would have been exactly what Alexander and Rufus would have meant. In fact, let's take a look. Take your Bibles and let's turn to, we'll start in Acts chapter 11, verse 20. Acts 11, 20. <clears throat> You will see that Cyprus and Cyrene were actually a place that preaching and teaching were taking place. Verse 20, chapter 11 of Acts. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch spoke unto the Grecians preaching the Lord Jesus. So there were those from Cyrene that came to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Chapter 13, verse 1. There were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucis of Cyrene and Mahan, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So you can tell that there's a church function actually in Cyrene. But here's the cool part. Go to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. As you're going there, what was Cyrus... I'm sorry... Um, Simon's son's names? Alexander and Rufus. Now, Rufus is not a name that's probably common. Do you, how many Rufuses do you know? One. You know one. All right. Very good. And that's all we need to know in this case is one. Very good. So let's go to Romans chapter 16. Paul is making his conclusive remarks to the Roman church. And we'll look at verse 13. We're going to just dive in. Salute Rufus. Chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Chances are very high because of Mark writing to the Roman Christians. They would have known Rufus and Alexander and Simon's wife, who happens obviously to be their mother. They would have been Christians. as a re And what do you think the odds are of Mr. Simon becoming a Christian because he carried Jesus' cross and he would have watched this whole thing? Very high. Very high. Was it worth it? You better believe it. Look at, in fact, we don't even know the downline. We don't know of Rufus and Alexander and their, their portrayal of Christianity within Rome. We don't know that. But it's obvious here, just out of, out of a scant God's providence, what would look like an accident, Simon's in the crowd, and he's picked out by the Roman soldiers to carry Jesus' cross. And you would have to think at this point, wouldn't you? Did he know anything about Jesus living in Cyrene? Probably not a lot. But as he would have been there, literally at the foot of the cross, watching this one that had been declared to be the Son of God, and then probably was there at noon when it became dark, and at 3 o'clock, and listen to this centurion say, that would have been as hardened as rock. If this is what you do for a living, kill people? And he says, truly, that was the Son of God. Do you think it made a difference to 
Simon? I know it did. His son is named as a friend to be saluted by Paul in Rome. That, my friends, is amazing. What was the value of Simon's soul? Everything that Jesus paid. Why didn't Jesus, I'm sorry, why didn't God step in and say enough's enough? Because it wasn't part of the plan. Why hasn't God just pulled the plug on America today? I think I would. (laughs) Because there's men and women and children that will come to Christ and the value of their souls is worth God waiting for. That's love. Satan will sell you out for nothing. He hates you. And to have a God that turned his back on his son that became sin that he didn't sin, to be holiness on those that did sin, that, my friends, is love. We call it grace, but that's love. Agapao, unlimited, focused, unblemished, limitless love. And if we're in the year 2023 and you want to be thankful for something, I'm thankful for my Savior. I'm thankful for my Savior. They divided his garments, such as even seems you have the Son of God and you're casting lots his clothes. That was spoken of actually in Psalm chapter 22. <clears throat> what brought me, uh, remember uh, on Christmas we had a message about the wise men, Bethlehem star. Turn with me down to uh, verse 23. Well, we'll continue. Verse 22, we'll be there in a moment. 22 verse chapter 15, they bring him unto the place called Golgotha, that is, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. We've already talked about that. Where it's at, I don't know exactly. They gave him a drink wine mingled with myrrh. What were the three gifts that the wise men, the magi, brought to Jesus Christ when he was probably less than two years of age? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh would have been a drink, or would have been added to a drink, a sedative, something that would have taken the edge off. I, I can't even imagine how much edge you need to take off if you've been flogged, beaten, and three nails, two of them through your wrists, and then your feet would have been put together in one, and it's like a railroad spike, I have to be honest. It's huge, it's monstrous. And thinking of crucifixion, you died literally by asphyxiation. Because as you would hang there, there would be no way to get air unless you would have pushed up to fill your lungs again. And to do that, you would have been putting pressure on the, on the nails that were in your feet, the nail in your feet, and, or pull yourself up. With, and I can't, Can you imagine the excruciating pain? And for hours this would go on, subject to... El- just, just the basic things, the flies, the insects, the birds, all of that. Just, can you imagine? Please don't for very long. That's what crucifixion is about. And he refused it. The myrrh, actually the sedative. He took it all in full force. There was nothing that he deadened, if you will. The callousness of the public as well is amazing. When they had crucified him, they parted his garments, verse 24, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. There was usually four men, four Roman 
uh, people that were involved in the crucifixion. So they split it amongst themselves. It was the third hour. Now, Mark would have used Roman time. I'm sorry, he would, have, he would have used Jewish time here. John used Roman time. The third hour, so the Jewish cal- uh, clock would have went from 6 to 6, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So the third hour from 6 a.m. would have been what? 9 o'clock. Jesus was on that cross at 9 a.m. 9 a.m. he's hung on the cross. Again, thinking of the speed at which this happened, if you go to the, the time that they were together, the Last Supper, that would have been the evening before. Probably about 9 o'clock in the evening. And 9 o'clock, 12 hours later, he's hanging on a cross. Can you figure that out? Is God in control? Yes. Because at 3 o'clock in the afternoon of Friday, that day, guess what's happening at the temple? The Passover lambs are being slaughtered. At exactly 3 o'clock p.m. on Friday afternoon, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist said of Jesus Christ. The first time he saw him from a distance, that's, what he, that's how he called him. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The Passover Lamb, the Passover Lamb, literally gave up his life when he said, It is finished at 3 o'clock p.m. on Friday afternoon, when all of those lambs at the temple over here, oh, we got all kinds of new maps up here, don't we? That literally, can you believe, who was in charge? God. God was. Now, what was I looking for over here? Okay. Does some see Tripoli? Ah, I think we're going to go like right in this region, right? Right in here. So he's, he's cruised over to Jerusalem, going to enjoy the Passover. He ends up carrying a cross for the Son of God. How is that going to look in the family history? <laughs> on, on Passover, like the preparation day, it was like a Friday, and Dad got up, Granddad got up, and he was going to go to Jerusalem and just kind of enjoy it because this is the day of preparation. And he was picked out of a crowd, and he carried the cross for Jesus Christ, which we've come to know as our family, as being our Savior. Now, that's cool history. <laughs> in fact, I'm sure in your family's history, somewhere, somehow, how you were acquainted with the gospel of Jesus Christ is miraculous because the Holy Spirit is the one that brought you. He's the one that brought you. There's even something, this is where we want to end today. I don't know if you knew this or not, but we're told about the two thieves, which probably were accomplices of Barabbas. Barabbas, the, the real, can you imagine, can you imagine those two guys? Bar- what? What? Why didn't we get off? How, Barabbas, is, he's the leader. He's the, he is the insurrectionist. We're just along for the ride. What's going on? In fact, the Bible tells us at least three counts that they both, both thieves, reviled him. That's the word that's used in the King James. Now think of that. I don't know if I would have the strength or the care. I've got, we've got three crosses. And again, we always want to make the cross really big. Have you been to some churches and like that cross is like 30 feet on the front yeah. wall? Not so much. In fact, all they had to do was just be suspended above the ground, which their feet were probably just that far off the ground. That patibulum would have been probably right here at this level. The top of the cross wouldn't even made the top of this room. It was not something that was overpowering in the sense, but it was very depicting in what it did. The imagery is imag- unimaginable. It was usually at a place of thoroughfare. It was along a highway. It was to make certain that if you go against Rome, this is what happens to you. Here's Jesus hanging on a cross, and you've got on the left side, a thief. That's how they're described. And on the right side, a thief. And I want you to see this. 
Now, if you're being crucified, would you do this? Let's take a look. Now, let's keep reading. Oh, we'll come until we get to it. The superscription, verse 26, of his accusation was written over. And if you take the full scale, it actually was not only just the king of the Jews, it was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And with them, with him, they crucified two thieves, one on his left right hand, the other on his right hand, on his left. Now, the other thing is, if you notice that there's usually, uh, the, the one in the middle is the taller cross. It's a little bit more grand. It's a little more, right? I don't believe that for a second. They were all the same. In fact, Romans probably would have made that even more clear. Your king, he's just like another thief. He's a loser just like them. Let's keep going. Verse 28, And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. You'll find that in Isaiah 53, which we're going to read. And they that passed by railed on him, mocking, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief. Are you kidding me? The chief priests have been mocking him since in the middle of the night, and they're still there. They're still poking at him. They said this. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. They didn't believe that for a second. They just said it. Watch this. Let Christ, the King of Israel, this is in mockery, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Stop. Jesus did come off that cross. They put him in a tomb. Three days later, he rose. Did they believe? No. What did they say? The disciples stole the body. He actually let them have the opportunity to believe, and they chose not to again. But watch the next verse, and this is the last part of this verse. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. I find that amazing on a number of accounts. I'm going to tell you, the anguish, the, the anguish and the punishment and the pain that would be going through your body, would you really take time to mock or revile the guy in the middle? I don't get it. That's exactly what the one kept. He kept that message too, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. So you really are? This is the deal? Prove it. I mean, I'm just as ready to get off of here as you are. If you, if you can do it, get me out of here, right? But did you see it was both? We could go to another account and it would be both. But we know there's also a passage in Luke that's one of them got it right. Now, what would you, say, what would you call that right then? They were doing exactly the same things. In fact, it says the same words as the chief priests, the scribes, and the rest of the mob. What would you call that? Call it what it is. This is the Son of God that's on a cross. He is being crucified because he's God. That, my friends, is blasphemy at the highest level. The first one, literally, to be saved from a blasphemous outpouring is, guess who? The thief. Jesus died on a cross to save that one first. What was the value of that man's soul that's hanging on a cross that was a thief? Jesus' life. That's amazing, isn't it? Let's take a look at that, the rest of the story, if you will. Let's go to Luke chapter, I'm going to guess about 23. We'll get there. Luke chapter 23. <clears throat> My voice is starting to wear out here, so we will finish up. 
Um, da, 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 da. Let's start in verse 36. Oh, here, I want you to see, there's another point that Jesus makes that is just amazing. Verse 30, let's start in verse 32. Verse 32. In chapter 23 of Luke, verse 32. There were also two other male factors, that is, criminals, led with him to be put to death. When they were come to the place which is called Calvary, that would be the Latin or the English term, there they crucified him, and the male factors, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Would that be the first thing out of your mouth? And they parted his garment and cast lots. The people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him, the letters of the Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews, written in three different languages. Uh, Pilate made sure to make as much fun of them as possible. One of the male factors which were hanged, railed on him or reviled him again, saying, if thou be Christ, if you truly, and that's interesting, the word that he's using, the Messiah, save thyself and us. Now the other one, answering, rebuked him, saying, dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. There is faith. There is belief on his account. And Jesus said, Verily I say unto thee, comma, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour. Now, we're not told, so that tells us right there this, at the sixth hour, so they've been on the cross for, for three hours. When they started reviling, it was probably early on in the crucifixion. I don't know how long it takes to be crucified to know that you're not going to get off of that cross. Probably not very long. But at some point, there was a distinction, a distinct difference between those two thieves. One of them continued reviling, blaspheming against him. The second thief, however, saw, you know what? This is truly our just reward. But it is not this man. Who are you speaking about? Think clearly. What are you doing? And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into thy kingdom. There's a statement of faith there. That man who blasphemously just hours before, quote, hours before, is now through faith putting his faith in Jesus Christ. How much was the value of his soul? The entire cost that Jesus paid. Let's finish by reading Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. Oh, there was another one. And we, I think we looked at it. I think we looked at it. I won't even go to go there. Write it down in your notes. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. What if you were one of the priests? There's something that happened at 3 o'clock. And we're jumping ahead to the next week. But literally, the veil that kept you, you would have never seen this. You would have served in the temple for years, probably, done your service on a weekly basis, whenever you were called. But there was one place you never, ever were allowed to go. Ever, ever, ever. You couldn't even look. You couldn't peek. You couldn't, or you might be dead. It was in the Holy of Holies. And there was a thick curtain. It was about two feet, it's thought to be, two feet thick. And it hung from the very top of the ceiling to the bottom. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which is exactly the time that Jesus died, exactly the Lamb of God died, and he said it is finished. That baby split from the top to the bottom, is what it said, not from the bottom to the top, but the top to the bottom, and opened up completely the Holy of Holies, which no longer do we need a priest. I say, praise God. You confess straight to Jesus Christ. You confess straight to God the Father. 
because Jesus paid the price. He's the Lamb of God. He is our high priest. He is fully and completely in charge. Now, what do you think about those priests that would have put of all of that together, the ones that were serving that day? And this would have been a high honor because this is the preparation day. This is the day of which lambs would be sacrificed for the Passover. Not just any Sabbath, but for the Passover. This was a high religious day. And literally for those few people, before their very eyes, see this indestructible veil torn from top to bottom and expose the Holy of Holies. At the same time, that Jesus said it is finished. If you go to Acts chapter 6, verse 7, just write it down, you will find that there were many priests that put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, these have been priests that literally would have been told that Jesus is a fraud, Jesus is a fake. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of the cross. But let's go to Isaiah 53. Let's close out there. Isaiah 53. We're going to read it. When's the last, has anybody read Isaiah 53 in the last week? Two weeks, year, two, there we go, okay, we're going to get there. Isaiah 53, who hath believed our report, verse 1, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no former comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep opened her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison, from judgment, and who shall declare this his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He made his grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Watch verse 10. Yet, all of those things I've just read, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, his offspring, if you will, the new generation, if you will, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And that was written hundreds of years before this fateful day that we can look back and they could look forward and say, that is the Savior of the world. <sighs> My friends, the value of a soul has cost Jesus Christ everything. And there's souls out there today that don't know Jesus. They will live eternally with Jesus or without Him. May we, spread, spread, may we spread the word that Jesus is the true Savior. He is the only one that would have given Himself. This is God, God Himself, to save one. That's amazing. 
That's love personified. That's love maximum. That is love that we can't fully even understand because it is truly eternal, eternal love. Next week, we're going to come back and we're going to take a look at God meeting men at Calvary. It will be the most amazing time frame, the most serious consequences that have ever been born on this earth, what sin truly cost God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the day. Thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus Christ. There are so many things that even today, Father, I was not adequately mentioned. I could not adequately describe what you, Father, the eternal Father of love, accomplished on Calvary's tree through your Son. Jesus Christ, his passion was to complete your work. His passion was to complete everything that needed to be accomplished so that men and women could be redeemed purchased out of sin. Father, I'm so thankful for what was accomplished. We are so weak by ourselves, Father, there is no strength in us, which therein literally is a great position to be, as even Paul said, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Father, fill us with the Spirit. Give us the strength we need to get through each and every day. Help us in life's journey, each step that we take, that it would be in a direction that is yielded to you. Forgive us, Father, for the sins that we commit. Father, thank you for living in Jesus Christ, the true living God that sacrificed himself to buy our redemption. There's no way to describe what was accomplished. To you and you alone be glory forever and ever for you alone are worthy of our praise. We thank you for what you're doing. We pray for our nation. We pray, Father, for America. We pray for those that do not know Jesus Christ personally, those that don't know a Savior that died for them, that has chosen to give himself for their soul. Even they don't understand the value of their soul. Go with us. Give us words when we need them. Help us in our actions. May our life be worthy of glorifying yourself. We bow in your, in your presence humbly, yielding to you in Christ's name. Amen.